We do want to say a special word of thank you to the members of our chancel ensemble. They were scheduled to play at our 10.30 a.m. outdoor service. And when we determined late last evening that that was highly unlikely today, they scrambled and adjusted rapidly uh, to be here to help lead us in worship today. So we thank all the members of our chancel ensemble for their leadership and worship this morning. Today we are continuing in our Lenten sermon series, which we are calling Ancestry DNA. Each week throughout Lent, we have been visiting with a different character or characters from our biblical family. Those individuals who have come before us and yet have formed our faith and our living for these days. We are about to turn the corner on Palm Sunday. Next week, we will visit not with one of our ancient ancestors from the Hebrew Bible, but with those disciples and a particular kind of animal that helps Jesus in his entry to Jerusalem. And then, of course, two Sundays from now, we will sit with the greatest ancestor of them all, the one who is our faith, Jesus Christ. But today, we stop one last time in the Old Testament to visit with two perhaps lesser-known individuals in that family of faith, and yet two people who have perhaps one of the most instrumental effects on extending that tree, that tree that will one day spring branches that you and I call home. And so we are invited to listen now for a word from God as we hear these verses, the very first verses from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. Friends, let us listen now for a word from God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and their two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people but by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home." May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home 
of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit now that it would dwell in this space. In this space. Use your spirit, O God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, no matter where it is, our hearts are this day. That together they would be glorifying and pleasing to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The short book of Ruth is arguably among the most compelling four chapters in all of the Bible. Think about the story that follows where we just finished there near the end of chapter one. Right after Ruth has that beautiful oratory to her mother-in-law widowed Naomi, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay, your people, my people, your God, my God. After Naomi relents and they return back to Naomi's home there in Bethlehem, Ruth shortly thereafter goes into the fields to glean crops from a relative of Naomi's, a man named Boaz. And Boaz in turn offers protection and food and water to Naomi and Ruth. And not long after that, Ruth and Boaz, they kindle a relationship, you might say, Eventually, they are married. And this short story ends with the birth of a son to Ruth and Boaz, a little boy named Obed. And Obed goes on to have a son named Jesse. 
And Jesse goes on to have a son who will one day become a king named David. And of course, it is from that family line that another child, another king, will one day be born. A king named Jesus. It's an amazing story. It's a remarkable story, but what truly makes it compelling in my mind is that this is a story that should end where it begins. It takes only five verses to establish the fact that matters. The only fact that really matters is that all of their husbands, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, all of their husbands are dead. After verse 5, there is literally no logical or legal or religious rationale that can possibly explain why Ruth and Naomi stick together. Think about it. One is young, the other is old. One still has a family. What is it Naomi says to Ruth? Go back to your mother's house. And one has no one. And perhaps most important of all, one is an Israelite and one is a Moabite. Intermarriage, rather, between these two religious groups was not necessarily unheard of in the ancient world, but it was explicitly forbidden in the Jewish scriptures in Deuteronomy. This is a story that should end where it begins. When all the men are dead, we expect all the women to go their separate ways. You know, I called my friend Rachel Bregman, the rabbi at Temple Beth Tefillah in Brunswick on Friday, to just see if there's something I was missing, if there's something that a Jewish audience would hear in this very Jewish story that I was overlooking. And she said, no, listen, Ruth and Naomi, bottom line, they do not belong together. But she said, that's what's so compelling about it. Because the fact that the story continues reveals to us that here are two women who take a risk. Here are two women who go above and beyond what is required of them. Now, you might recall if you've been worshiping with us online or in person throughout the past few weeks that we visited another story where two people took a risk, Abraham and Sarah, right? God takes a risk on this old couple, and they, in turn, take a risk on God. But here in this story, it's a very particular kind of risk that Ruth and Naomi take. They risk loving and welcoming one who they are not required or obligated or even expected to love and welcome. Here are two people who push the edges out 
what their tradition tells them is necessary. It's really interesting. If you flip forward in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew begins with the Christmas story. But you might remember from our Advent series that before you even get to the events that lead up to Jesus' birth, Matthew starts with a genealogy. It's this long list of names, mainly names of men, leading down to this baby boy, Jesus. But on that list, if you look closely, there are five women. And one of them is Ruth. With this idea, this this realization that Ruth and Naomi are risk takers, it makes me begin to wonder if perhaps what Matthew is trying to say to his audience, to us, Perhaps what Matthew is trying to say is, you know, if you are curious, or if you get curious, as you continue reading this story about Jesus and all the things that he will do, the story I'm about to tell you in my gospel, if you get curious at any point about where Jesus gets that norm-defined, that rule-stretching, that border crossing that status quo breaking quality called grace if you're wondering where that quality was first born that one that name ruth that may not be a bad place to start Think about it. The branch on our family tree, the branch that supports the weight of all the other branches that eventually lead to Jesus Christ himself, begins with this story of two women who are willing to take a risk. And not just any risk, who are willing to risk it all. Their family, their faith, their citizenship, their safety. Two women who are willing to risk it all in the name of love and of welcome. If Naomi and Ruth don't take that risk of loving and welcoming one another in this story, then the branch that all all the branches that come, they cease to be. Those are our ancestors. That is our DNA. And I can't help but wonder, when someone meets me, when someone meets you, when someone meets any of us, can they tell? Can they tell that that is the branch that we are born from. You know, I was listening to a talk recently by a Presbyterian pastor named Mark Ramsey. And Mark Ramsey was telling about a church that he began serving in the mid-90s in downtown Denver. Downtown at the time was still pretty dead, and the church itself that he was called to serve was also dying. But when he got there, he helped to lead the congregation in an assessment of their neighborhood and their neighbors. 
They helped to launch a 150-bed shelter for some of their unhoused neighbors there in downtown Denver. They got active in some social programs. And sure enough, after a little time, the church began to find some new life. People began returning or showing up for the first time, including a lot of young people. And Mark remembered one young person in particular that began worshiping there at his church. It was a purple-haired bartender, as he described her. This young woman, he said, would work at a bar in the neighborhood until about 4 a.m. every Saturday night. And when she got off, she and her boyfriend would meet up at a local coffee shop, and they'd get some coffee, and then they'd come to the 8 a.m. worship service. And he said, I remember this couple because they would always sit in the back pew and they do something before worship that you weren't necessarily used to encountering in a sanctuary setting. They would sit back there and they would make out before worship. They hadn't seen each other all weekend and they were very happy to see one another. It's not something you often see in a church then or now, I suspect, and so it's no surprise that many of the members began coming up to Mark rather flustered both before and after worship. He said, member after member came up to me and they said, you have to do something about this. This can't go on. This purple-haired bartender and her boyfriend. And Mark said he reached a point when enough people came up to him where he finally threw his hands up in the air. And he said to them, listen, what do you want me to do? Do you want them here or not? He said, would you rather have this couple in church listening attentively during the worship, even if they're smooching a little bit before, or do you want to say something to them and make sure that they know they are not welcome here? Because, he said, I promise you, if you say something to this couple, if you cannot expand your notion of love and welcome to include this person then I promise after you say something to them, they will never step foot, not just in our church, but in any church for the rest of their lives. If you tell them, either in action or in word, that they are not welcome, they'll get the message loud and clear. He says, I finally turned to my church members who were very worked up about this, and I told them, some risks, some risks are worth taking. Some risks are worth taking. Hmm. I was thinking about that story this week, knowing that we would be in here, in our sanctuary for the first time in a long time. And even though there aren't many people in the space today physically, and even though I know we're still perhaps weeks or months away before we're able to gather in this space in the ways that we are used to and in the ways that we want to, I found myself kept keeping, or rather, I kept looking at that back pew. You can't see it, but I can see it. And I thought to myself, you know, someday, a purple-haired bartender is going to walk into our church. 
They're going to walk into this sanctuary. Now, I'll grant you, they may not actually have purple hair or be a bartender, but I promise you, they are going to feel a lot like Ruth felt, I suspect, when she first landed with Naomi back in Judah. They will walk into this space, and when they look around, they will feel like a foreigner in a foreign land. And they're going to sit in here, and they're going to hear a pretty compelling story. They're going to hear about courageous widows. They're going to hear about flawed kings and defiant prophets. They're going to hear right from this pulpit and from this chancel and from this space the story of a rabble-rousing Messiah and an empty tomb. They're going to hear stories about a broken and imperfect body called the church that somehow God still manages to use in the work of building up the kingdom. They're going to hear it all. A pretty compelling story, if I do say so myself. But what they're going to do after they hear that story is they're going to look around, not at the space. They're going to look around into our faces and into our lives. And they're going to wonder, you know, are these people who just show up once a week, are these people who do what is required of them, in other words, but then just go on and how they treat others and how they spend their money, how they spend their time, how they live into their vocations? Are these people who show up, do what is required, and then go on as if none of it really matters? That's what they're going to be wondering when they look into our faces and when they hear our voices. But they may also be wondering, or are these people who are willing to risk something? Who are willing to risk their sense of what is normal? Their sense of what is required? sense of what is customary, what is comfortable, are these people who are willing to risk it all, to welcome, to really welcome and love me. Friends, if Naomi and Ruth teach us anything, about who it is we are, about what it is imprinted on the DNA that courses through our bodies every day we have breath in our lungs. If Ruth and Naomi teach us anything about who it is we are and who it is we are called to be, who it is we are going to be sent out into the world from this space to be for decades, 
centuries, and even millennia to come. If they teach us anything about those things, then what it is, is that some risks, some risks are worth taking. May we take the same risk that they did all those years ago to love and welcome more than is required. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may it be so this day and forevermore. Amen.